to be into that. We're leading up, and today, of course, the last week before Christ's re- uh, crucifixion and resurrection begins on this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. And this morning's message is entitled, Behold Your King. Some of you, perhaps, not many of you in this uh, gathering, but some of you probably remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II of England, QE2, as often referred to. How many, how many, can I see a hand? How many remembers that? Yeah, there's some of you. Uh, maybe you saw it, maybe you saw uh, replays of it and whatever down through the, through the years. But many more, no doubt of you, recall something of the carriage ride of Prince Charles and Lady Diana in the 80s. Now, a lot more of you would raise your hands on that. Uh, you at least uh, saw that or heard about that. Well, the excitement level of the crowd on Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago was even higher than either one of those. An incredible expectation. It was a charged atmosphere with anticipation and excitement because at last the long-awaited, long-promised king of Israel was coming to his seat in Jerusalem. Listen now to our scripture reading this morning. First of all, from Psalm 45, verses 1 through 6, and then from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, and my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp, the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now to John's gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will always remain. Let us pray. Father, help us now as we think on John's view of the events on that Palm Sunday so long ago. Father, help us to understand its significance and what it pointed to of what you promised to do and will do. Father, we pray these things asking for your light and your illumination and the help of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are among the gospel writers, some have entries that are just in their gospel alone. Some might Mark and Luke might, for instance, both be covering the same story that, or event that was happening. And there are not too many of the gospel writers, though, that record, all of them record the events of Jesus. But this is one of them. This story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. And of course, we're not going to be able to pull all of the threads on that. We're just looking at one of those, John's account this morning. But it also reaches back, as you've seen, into the Old Testament and provides a connection point that hopefully we'll see going forward. Here's our outline for today. The procession, that's pretty obvious. The procession, the perceptions, and the promises. The procession, the the coming in, the perceptions, what people were seeing and understanding, and the promises that were foretold and fulfilled For many years, prior to COVID-19, our children came down this aisle right in front of me here, uh, waving their best rendition of palm branches, probably Sago palms, and I don't know what the ones were exactly uh, in the time of Jesus, but they were palm branches. And our children, Miss Louise, and would bring their children down. And hopefully, that's going to be resuming next year. We're already, she's already planning on that, I know. So uh, hope to get back to that as our numbers continue to pick up. 
post, post-COVID. So uh, it's coming back. So praise the Lord for that. We'll look forward to that. Well, that was what was happening on that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, and he was, because of what he had done, he was gathering great crowds, and they were following him all the way in through the Eastern Gate on that Palm Sunday. Now, many pilgrims, as I said, were coming to Jerusalem. This was already Passover, and therefore there were tons of people there. Just more and more were hearing about what Jesus had done. It was the Passover feast, and the news of Jesus' uh, raising Lazarus had spread like wildfire. There was a buzz all throughout Jerusalem. There were high, high-level expectations that were raised for welcoming crowds. This was, they thought, the moment of destiny. This was finally when at last the time had come for their king to come and to restore the kingdom of Israel to all its former glory when their Messiah had come. They were sure that he had come to rid them of the scourge of the Romans, to raise equal to rid. Finally, Our hero, our champion is coming, and he's going to get rid of these dirty, nasty, Gentile Romans. So many of the people went out in procession to meet Jesus, carrying those palm branches, and welcome him on his triumphal journey into the city, the ancient holy city. I happen to have... And with the assistance of our uh, uh, slide operator, um, this is the descent from the Mount of Olives. This was uh, when uh, years ago, Louise and I got to go with Joe and Rita Overly uh, through through their grace in part. um, And we were able to go. And uh, matter of fact, that's, uh, well, let's see. Must have died the uh, batteries. Oh, there we go. That's, that's Joe, there's Joe and Rita right there. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, they're going, we're coming down from the Mount of Olives in this area and winding down. And then, of course, you can see to go up to Jerusalem. That's the ascent. And next slide, please. And, uh, whoops. Oop. Uh, there we go. Um, and we're getting a little bit closer, getting further down. Next one, please. Now we're at this level and then started making our way up through the eastern gate. This is the now blocked by uh, Muslims that have blocked this date. I guess they think they're going to keep Jesus from going through it when the, when the time comes. I don't know. But uh, it's, it's the gate that Jesus would have entered in. And then there's one more that's just a little more of a highlight for that. Yeah, smaller. Uh, gives you a little more detail. And so that's the ascent. So the descent from the Mount of Olives and the ascent up and into and through the gate um, of the eastern gate of Jerusalem. All right, thank you. Uh, So John records, as they did this, their jubilant cry of what? Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Um, 
They took branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, that quote itself came from Psalm 118, one of the uh, psalms that Jesus would have used with his disciples in the Last Supper. Would have been a common during Passover to, to recite from that song. So, Hosanna means save, I pray. That's its meaning. Hosanna, save, I pray. And it can refer to either oneself or to God. For instance, it could refer to, in saying if it's to us, it would be, please save us, would be the basic translation of that. Please, God implied, save us, deliver us. If it was God, it would be like God saved the king. That's how it would have been used. So it could have been used either way or maybe it used both ways. Whatever the case, they saw Jesus as the long-anticipated promise deliverer, the one who was going to come and rid them of all of the evil that had befallen them. But you can imagine, you can imagine what they must have thought and been thinking when they saw Jesus and they'd heard, oh, Jesus is coming. And they were all excited and all pumped. And here comes Jesus on a donkey. What? That's our commander. That's our five-star general. And he's riding on a lowly donkey. What's wrong with this picture? It had to be scratching their heads. They were excited, but they should have known something this is not going to go the way they think it's going to go. Jesus knew that quite well, but they didn't. But it was a harbinger, and it also for, fulfilled prophecy, as we'll see. John tells us that it was fulfillment of the ancient prophecy found in Zechariah 9. Now, I'm not going to refer to that yet. I'm going to do that a little bit further down the line. But I'll get to that. But here's, here's the thing that's, again, interesting. This would not be the last time that Jesus disappointed someone. They, they were expecting great things, and the king was going to come, and he comes riding on a lowly donkey. He doesn't have any armor on. He doesn't have any weapons with him. He doesn't have any horses and Didn't quite meet their expectations. Jesus has done that. He did that then. He's done that for a long, long time. Still doing it. People go around, well, if Jesus would just do the things that I want him to be like, and if he would be, then I might follow him. Jesus does not meet our expectations because usually our expectations are wrong. He's told us what? The way up is how? Down. Things like that over and over again. The second point here this morning is the perceptions. That's basically in verses 17 through 19. In verses 17 through 19, John tells us there were two groups of people. <laughs> 
not just one, at that triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday, now we call Palm Sunday morning. But those two groups had very, very different perceptions about Jesus and about how this whole thing was going to go. And in the process, a lot of things got turned around in ways that neither group understood. Neither one had things go the way they thought were going to go at the outset. Things changed. But their initial perceptions, there was this group that had been with Jesus and had been following him for quite some time, all the way from, from back in, in, in the, the, on the Jordan River when he started his ascent up into Jerusalem for many, many days. There had been those that had followed him, and many of those had seen, actually seen with their eyes, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But there was another group there. They weren't coming down the Mount of Olives into and proceeding up into Jerusalem. They were coming out the gates of Jerusalem, coming down. You see, the ones, the first group had seen or heard firsthand accounts of Lazarus. But the second group, they had just heard rumors. And the, as we're going to see, the Pharisees found later opportunity. It's not in the text that we're dealing with today, but they found opportunity. And they were part of bringing rabble to commingle with the groups that were coming up and in. They were creating confusion and all kind of chaos. But here's the thing that's so ironic. All this did not escape the notice of the Pharisees, as I said. And at that point in time, they were thinking, oh, snap, this is not going the way we expected. We were, we've been trying to catch this guy for three years. And we finally thought we, and now look at this. Look at this massive support. Look how the masses are coming to him. And what did they say literally? Now, they said in, in, verse, in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing? We're getting nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, obviously, they were using hyperbole, considerable amount of hyperbole. They, they weren't saying every single human being alive on the planet at that time. But they were saying every, everybody is it's beginning to believe this guy's the real thing. What are we going to do? This guy's, we know he's a, 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 a fraud. We know he's an imposter. But how are we going to stop him? We've tried everything. We've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at them. How in the world is this going to turn out well for us? That was their perception at the beginning as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But as I said, even soon, other groups 
in collusion would ultimately begin to mix the message. And by the end of the day and in the days ahead, there were more and more people turning away from Jesus. How ironic, though, that both groups, the ones that had been following Jesus and the Pharisees and their followers and their rabble and their thugs and rioters, they both were right and they both were wrong. Say how? (laughs) They both were right and they both were wrong. You see, the Pharisees thought, oh, we're not going to ever get him. But within the next four days, they would be proved wrong. They would, the tide turned, and ultimately Jesus was crucified by the authority of Pontius Pilate, the Gentile. But they were also wrong. I mean, they were also right. They were, they, they, they thought they were, they, they thought they were not going to have their dream come true. And yet it did come true. So they were, didn't get what they expected there. But on the other hand, they were also righter than they could have ever possibly imagined when they said, look, the whole world is going to him. They were so prophetic. They were so revealing of what God was up to and what Jesus would ultimately do. They were righter than they possibly could have known. And John goes on to give us a foretaste of that in the next section of his account. Listen to uh, John 20, uh, John 12, 20 through 21. This is a little bit beyond the next verses beyond what our scripture reading was. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Nasty Gentiles. There were that, excuse me. Now among those who went up to worship at the the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. Why to Philip, the disciple of Jesus? We don't know. Maybe he spoke Greek fairly fluently but for whatever reason they came up to him and he said who was from Bethsaida in Galilee that's referring to to Philip and these Greeks asked him sir we wish to see Jesus we want to see the long promised king now, we don't know how they got that knowledge, whether they were proselytes or whether they had, had kind of on the outskirts of, of, of Israel in terms of they couldn't be full-fledged Jews, but they, they could be from afar. They could be either interested or, or maybe even uh, have made some kind of, of, a, of, a, of a commitment to being a part of the nation of Israel, but there were limitations. But for whatever reason, they were asking to see Jesus. Now, here's another incredible irony. The Lord's life on earth began with a visit from whom? Gentiles. The Lord's life on this earth ended 
with the visiting Gentiles from Rome. One from the east, the other from the west. But here's the point that matters. He, Jesus, would become in the events that would happen beginning with this day and that he had been leaning to and leaning into for years to come and be the sacrificial lamb. He would become the scattered seed of Abraham. Not of David, but of Abraham. The one that God said in him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That includes the Gentiles. And in Ephesians 2.13, that's Genesis 12.3. And then in Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, who once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So here are these Gentiles. They are part of the story. And they're part of where the story is going to go. And these hated Gentiles will be the ones in whom, in, because of the promises of Abraham, in whom all the Asians and all the Gentiles of the world shall be blessed. It will be worldwide. It won't just be about Jerusalem. It will be about the whole earth. And Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection, is scattered. And he's the seed that's thrown into the air and settles all throughout the land and grows and multiplies. Finally, the promises. That's in verse 15 of our text. When it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, remember, I said I'd come back to that Isaiah, excuse me, Zechariah uh, passage in verse 15. Well, here's the additional part of the prophecy Zechariah 9 9 through 10. Should, from out, should sound familiar to you because it was on the screen this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it foretold Jesus would come just the way he came. But more is here talking about that kingdom, what kind of king he would be. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak, not war, but peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The 
promise again that what God is going to do is not nationwide, it's worldwide. That's his purpose, that's his promise that will be fulfilled in Jesus. You see, if we think of that reading this morning in that Psalm 45, 1 through 6, that last part, this part is what shows the linkage to the similar passage. Listen. In Psalm, let's see, where's that? Oh, oh it's, it's, the part, it's the part that I just read about this, again, the nations, the rule, his rule. His rule shall be, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is also backing up what Psalm 45 said. And John goes on to tell us the way these promises are, are being fulfilled and will come to pass by the everlasting king. That's in John's account here. And this is a little further again in this, in this story. In chapter 12, verses 30 through 33, Jesus answered, the voice that is, the voice has come for your sake. He's talking to his hearers, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself and he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die you see Jesus was saying this is all going to come about everything is about to change and I am going to break the back of death I will be put to death but I will take the stinger of death away. Soon the devil would have his day within that week, but it was going to be short-lived. It looked like Satan had won because the true king was stripped and beaten and scourged and crucified. He was made a public spectacle before men. And yet, if you read Ephesians, ultimately it says that Jesus is the one that made death and all the enemies, his enemies and ours. He made them the spectacle. He made them the laughing stock and the ones that would be in derision. The cross was not defeat. It was victory. Satan's agonizing scream in Mel Gibson's The Passion. I think it's one of the most beautiful and brilliant things about that film. It's when that drop of tear symbolically coming from the Father that hit the earth and begins to break open the earth because, and you hear in the background this blood-curdling scream, banshee scream. It's not 
from Jesus. It's not from others. It's from Satan. Because he knows he's lost. He knows that the, everything that he has tried to do has been all for nothing. Because the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice. And he will rise. And he will be victorious. God has accepted the atonement made. And the ransom has been paid. And the enemy of God's people, the ancient one, has been bound and plundered. Jesus has gone into the strong man's house and ripped him out of it and tossed him out. You see, one day, and you know when that day was? It was that this day. It's when Jesus was saying this in the triumphal entry in that passage that I read. In 1231B was the defeat of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus said, Now, now is the judgment of this world. Notice, when was that taking place? While Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Now, you want a point in time when everything's going to change? It's changing now, this week. Everything is going to turn. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up to the earth, I will draw all men to myself. You see, the kingdoms of this world became that day. In principle, not entirely, not in all aspects yet, but in principle, the defining of the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That day, in principle, the kingdoms of our Lord, the world's kingdoms have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Definitive and now progressive. Not yet final. Not yet final. But definitively, in principle, the essence, everything has changed. It's all now just moving in that direction in motion. And there may be waves up and down, but it's ultimately going where Jesus said it would go. It's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the multi-metallic image that was destroyed by a single stone. That when it smashed the kingdoms of this world, it grew into a great mountain that ultimately filled the whole earth. That is what was accomplished. And because of that, now we listen to Revelation 11, 15 through 17, hear these words. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Is he through? No. But he began the reign then. And he's still reigning. And he will one day finally complete that reign at the second coming of his son. Hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Behold your king. Amen. Father, help us see Jesus more clearly today. The one who is the rightful king. The one who came and gave up everything to ransom us, to buy us back, to redeem us from the powers of darkness and bring us into everlasting light and salvation. Father, thank you that he's not through with his work. Sometimes in our time world, we don't see it clearly. We don't know, we don't understand why things are the way they are. But we know that definitively his victory is assured. It's already been accomplished. It's already changed the world multiple times over. And it will continue until he returns. Father, help us to behold and delight in our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.